Alright, well. And I want to direct your attention to the beginning of that chapter there. The, this evening I want to preach about the subject of uh, finishing well in regards to the Christian life, the Christian race that we're running, and you know just some tips about getting through it and practical things. Uh, but specifically I want to start out right here in 2 Timothy chapter number 4 where it says in verse number 1, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, Preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand." I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. So, I believe that this was the Apostle Paul's last letter that he wrote. I believe that this was shortly before he was going to be put to death. I understand that people have different opinions on that and think that he might have lived longer than that, but the Bible just doesn't specifically say. And if you have that opinion, I don't think that really matters that much. Because I think while he was writing this, even if he didn't immediately die afterwards, he was under the impression that he was going to, right? So basically up to this point in his life, he's saying that though he's about to die, he doesn't regret it because he knows that before that, he lived a good life, he ran a good life, he followed the Lord before that, so he didn't have any regrets. But I specifically want to just talk about the whole idea this evening. I want to compare specifically about like preparation for actual races in this world and just the things that go into it and compare it to the Christian life and how some of those things work out. It's a little bit of a different style of message than I'm used to preaching, but you know, to be honest, I was down south this week. I was in North Carolina. I had some good barbecue and hung out with a bunch of southerners, and I just kind of thought, I'm going to preach a southern-style message tonight because uh, I think that every once in a while that stuff is okay. So, so you know, think about this for a second how people have heard the phrase a lot of times about how the Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. You know, and it's like people know that, but they don't actually sit back and think about what it really means. And, you know, it's like, I know the Christian life is a, not a sprint, I know it's a marathon, and then that same person will just take off running as fast as they can, going down the Christian life, and then they get tired and they fall by the wayside and they just kind of go off and don't do much. But, you know, but think about it for a second. When, you know, think about a 100-meter dash. You know, go online and just look up, you know, like Usain Bolt's world record and just watch that run. And you think about how fast it is, you know, like just how short of a distance is, how fast he covers it, and just like what he looks like and what all the other runners look like. And you think about just how short of a distance that is. Now, say that I were to go outside and, you know, take my dog on a walk or take my family on a walk or do anything, and you just casually stroll 100 meters. Am I going to look like those people do after they've just run 100 meters and are, you know, out of breath, they're heavy breathing, you know, they've just exhausted themselves completely? We went to the same distance. What's the difference? Well, the amount of energy that we put into it, how fast we tried to work through it, and how hard we worked at it. There's two completely different things. And, you know, the thing is, there's a lot of Christians out there that are constantly running at like 100 meter dash speed and trying to maintain that over a lifetime. And I'm telling you, that is a recipe for disaster. And it might seem like it's okay at the start, but eventually you're going to get tired. And the problem is, is that people don't just do this 
and they're like, oh man, I need to take a break. They just completely drop out of the race entirely. They fall completely by the wayside and say, the Christian life is too hard. It's just not for me. I'm going to move on. And the truth is that it's not that the Christian life is too hard. It's that their idea of the Christian life is too hard. And what they put themselves through is too hard. The Bible says that Jesus tells us that his burden is easy and his yoke is light. So how is it that people mix that up and then act like it's just the most difficult thing in the world to live the Christian life, to run the Christian race, It's not that difficult. Go to Romans chapter number 12. As you're turning to Romans chapter number 12, I'll read for you Matthew chapter number 4 and verse number 4. It says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So, you know, the first thing that I want to think about in comparison to the Christian race, to just a normal race or a normal sporting event, is your diet. You know, what are you ingesting on a regular basis? You know, you wouldn't go out and try to run a marathon you know, when you think about all the different food options that we have in this country, there's like homegrown, organic, none of the fertilizer or anything like that. It's good for you. You've got hearty steak all the way to burgers that are made out of pinto beans or something. You know, I haven't tasted one. I have no intentions to taste one. But, you know, it, you know, people eat whatever garbage they can get their hands on to virtue signal and do whatever. But so they'll eat this stuff, and you have all these different options for food. You can go to McDonald's, and you can get a burger there. You can go to pretty much any fast food restaurant, get any kind of food, or you can go to the grocery store. You can buy good groceries, make yourself good home-cooked meals. Well, when you think about these athletes, you know, that are, like, training for the Olympics, and they're working really hard, and their bodies, like, everything they care about, are they just going to put a bunch of trash into their body all the time? Are they going to eat the most horrible junk food that they can imagine or anything else? I mean, I saw some article the other day that um, that Russell Wilson, the quarterback for the Seahawks, literally spends a million dollars a year just on his body. And, and not like different medicines and things like that, but just paying for trainers, paying for equipment, paying for special kinds of food, paying for people to cook this food, get him on this real crazy regimented schedule and to live just this crazy life but you know what he's in crazy physical condition and if you're going to put a million dollars into your body and your physical condition on a yearly basis you're probably going to be in pretty good shape but you know all that tells me about him is that he takes it seriously you know he takes the game of football and all the money that it makes him seriously because you think about it his investment he puts a million dollars in but then makes millions and millions and millions with how successful of a player he is you know At the same time, though, when you look at him and you think about the money he puts into it and you think about the work that he puts into it, and your reaction is, wow, he takes that seriously. But, you know, what do you think about a Christian that they live their life and they just kind of live just like the world does? They watch all the same TV shows that the world does. They spend, they get into all the same form of entertainment. They don't put God first in their life. They have an imbalance of, you know, vanity and vain things and just pure entertainment compared to the things of God and how often they think about the things of God. You know, what would you say about someone like that? You compare them in terms of running the race to someone that just kind of eats whatever, eats junk food, doesn't properly prepare. And then, you know, what it ultimately comes down to is you look at them and think, well, they just must not take the race very seriously. You know, if you see someone that's just constantly ingesting trash, you know, like say that I was going to run a marathon tomorrow, right? And you guys see me in here. I'm ripping open a pack of Skittles. I'm taking the whole thing in one bite, drinking a two liter of Mountain Dew all by myself. And it's like, I'm going to wake up at five o'clock tomorrow and get a personal best time in my marathon. Nobody would think that I'm taking it seriously. But you know, when Christians go and they live a life 
that isn't pleasing to God according to it. They don't try to live something that, you know, uh, would be pleasing to God. They are more gratifying to the flesh. And rather than doing the things that the Spirit wants us to do, fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. You know, going on the same thing about, you know, comparing it to Russell Wilson, who spends like a million dollars a year on his uh, body and just keeping himself in shape. I saw a press conference of a guy named uh, Cristiano Ronaldo. I think is how you pronounce his name. He's a famous soccer player. He's really, really good. And basically, they did a press conference. And I'm guessing that Coca-Cola, like, sponsored the press conference. And so a lot of times for these athletes at the press conferences, they'll have water set out for them to drink. Well, there was literally bottles of Coke just at the end of the table. And he sits down. And before he starts talking, just loses it over the fact that they sat Coke on the table. And it's just like demanding. And keep in mind, these Coca-Cola was paying millions of dollars probably for those bottles to sit there and act like they represented him. And the guy that they wanted representing them just talked about how trash the drink was, how he wanted water. That's what he drinks. You don't get that stuff in your body. And, you know, here's the thing. I'm not afraid of Coca-Cola, and I'm not going to act like I'm just some health guy up here, and I only drink water or do whatever. But I'm also not a professional soccer player that gets, that gets paid millions of dollars, you know, to do my job. You know, so he gets greatly offended by that. Well, imagine if Christians had the same exact attitude towards sin and towards the thing that God doesn't want us to get involved in. And the things that we can see in the Bible where, hey, this isn't right or we shouldn't do this, or even just things that aren't necessarily sin, but just that we take so much self-gratification out of just vain things in this world. Like, you know, sports, for example. When, when we put more of an emphasis on how often we watch sports or enjoy sports, that at face value, I don't think there's anything wrong with sports or following sports or paying attention to it. When there becomes a problem is when the sports in our life are more time-consuming and more valuable than the things of God. And I'm not saying that you need to, like, pull out a stopwatch. And basically, whenever you're watching TV, time how long you're watching TV. And then after you're done watching TV, go into the next room and read the Bible for one minute more than you spent watching TV. You know, I'm saying that on a general basis, our thoughts and our thought process and our mind should be on the things of God. You know, if you find yourself just worried about all the things of the world all the time, and you're just constantly worried about what's going on with sports or what's going on in entertainment world or what's going on just with any little thing that this world has to offer you and you don't find yourself thinking about the things of God and thinking to yourself about what God thinks about what you're doing, you have an imbalance in your diet and you're not going to be able to run a successful race because you'll be trying to run the race but then you're not you know, ingesting the right things. If I were to go out and try to run a marathon after eating nothing but Skittles and sugary drinks or whatever... I'm not going to make it very far. And if you're trying to go up against the wicked things that this world is going to throw at you to try to get you to stumble and fall off the course, and your diet is full of nothing but things of the flesh and vain things and that this world has to offer, you're not going to make it very far. It works the exact same way. To think about it that way, it's important that we specifically, like the Bible says here in Romans chapter number 12, set ourselves apart. Notice in verse number 1, it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You know, these athletes that pay so much attention to their bodies, why are they paying attention to it? Well, because they have millions of dollars at stake. Their whole performance, all of their contracts are based on what they perform on the field. 
you know, they, you know, especially newer players that will come into the league, especially like in the NFL, they'll work really hard their first few years, try to get their big contract, and some of them, they get paid and get a bunch of guaranteed money and just quit. You know, they start playing like garbage, but the thing is, the team inked a deal with them and gave them millions of dollars. They got what they want, and they moved on. You know, that, that's how some of them do it. But these people that base all their money off of it, they base their livelihood off of it, that's fine. But, you know, the thing is, Christians... While your livelihood and that your bank account might not necessarily reflect your Christian life, know that we're laying ourselves up treasures in heaven. And that this world, everything in it, all of our money, all of our house, everything about it, one day will vanish away. And I'm not saying that we don't pay attention to these things, that we don't take care of our things, that we don't live in a way that you know, is just a good way to live according to society and take care of our house, take care of the things that are in it and set ourselves up in a way that we can financially be successful. But why in the world would we get so focused on our house and so focused on the things of this world that then all of a sudden those things outweigh where we put our standing with God and we prioritize our home, we prioritize our career before we prioritize God and how he should be in it. We should be set apart and more separate, and our bodies should be used for the things of God, not for the pleasures of this world. We shouldn't dedicate ourselves after vanity and things that don't matter in the long run when we ultimately have the opportunity and the privilege to serve a God that died for us and that promised us eternal life and many, many rewards that can come along with it. We should worry about those things and serve Him rather than worrying about serving ourselves and getting involved in things that honestly don't necessarily matter. Now, go over to Ephesians chapter number 6. You know, the other thing that you'll do when you're running a race or you're worrying about uh, running a successful race is you'll wear the proper attire. Now, I'm not talking actually about uh, physical clothes that you wear. I want to talk about the whole armor of God specifically and spend some time on that. But, you know, to compare this to when you're running or whatever, you know, I don't know how many of you know, but I was a competitive swimmer. I did a bunch of stuff with that. And let me tell you something. When it comes to what we wore and the things that we did in order to improve our times, it is ridiculous. You know, I mean, you, you would have like, you know, full grown adult men shaved, you know, cleaner than a woman, you know, in terms of just no body hair, nothing. I mean, I, I took it to a bit of an extreme when I was a kid and I literally shaved my eyebrows off. You know, but I mean, it's just like everybody, your body, there's none of it. You know, your legs don't have hair, your arms don't have hair, your chest doesn't have hair, your back doesn't have hair, completely shaved. And you say, does it really make that big of a difference? You know, honestly, it makes some. And, and I'm not saying it makes like you're going to drop like five seconds off of your 30 second swim, but you'll drop a couple hundredths of a second. And sometimes that's what the race comes down to. And you know, all I could tell you about a swimmer that's shaved all the way down, that they wear a super tight suit to reduce the drag rather than wearing like swim trunks or something. You'll never watch the Olympics and see them swim in a pair of swim trunks because there's a lot of drag that comes along with it. And it holds you back and it adds seconds to your time. And you say, why would somebody dress like that? Why would somebody shave all their legs? Doesn't that make them look effeminate? Well, listen, what it does is it shows me they take it seriously. They take their speed seriously. They take their sport seriously. And you know what? As Christians, there should be nothing wrong with us looking a little bit different than society in the way that we do things to show we take it seriously. 
you know, rather, and you know, I'm, I'm not really planning on getting that much into dress standards with what I'm saying. I do want to focus more on the whole armor of God, but, you know, dress standards would go hand in hand with what I'm saying here. Sometimes people get embarrassed about trying to, you know, dress in a way that's not that common to what other people in the world are wearing. You know, they'll, they'll worry about, you know, trying to look as trendy as we can or trying to buy all the things that, you know, you walk into like a Kohl's or a Target or anything and you go into their clothing section and you see the, you know, models that they have up on the screen and it, they're always wearing just stupid stuff. I mean, I went to a JCPenney the other day. Some of you guys saw it and they were literally selling jeans with like mud stains on them for like $40, you know, and, and just like this is the new thing that's in style. I'm thinking, what in the world? You know, if I wanted that, I could go to Salvation Army and buy a pair of jeans for a dollar and go work in the mud for a day, and then I'd have the same exact product, you know. But, you know, it's just ridiculous stuff, and people will make themselves look like idiots and fools. But the thing is, as Christians, people sometimes get self-conscious. They feel like they don't look like everybody else, and they feel like they don't look that good. But, you know, when I see people that are dressed right, and they're serving God, and they, you know, are trying to do the right thing, it just tells me they're taking their Christian race seriously. They are doing things above and beyond what is required for them in order to go to heaven, which is just faith in Jesus Christ. Anybody can be saved by faith, but in terms of earning their rewards, in terms of taking the race seriously, there's a completely different look to that type of person than just any other person in the world that lives a normal worldly life and still gets saved. It just shows they're taking it seriously. But in Ephesians chapter number 6, we have this passage about uh, the whole armor of God, and I think it's a really, really important thing to focus on and the things that are contained in this part. In verse number 10, we're going to start reading Ephesians chapter 6. It says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, and against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in that evil day, having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And I want to spend some time about thinking about the shield of faith, because... You know, obviously, we don't physically walk around with a giant shield that said the shield of faith and block all these things away. But, you know, this life on a regular basis gets more difficult and harder to live. You know, the country that we live in gets more wicked by the day. The things that we have to deal with get more wicked. And it's up to us to have a heart full of faith and just making the conscious decision to serve God no matter what and being able to hold up the spiritual shield of faith and hide us from all the fiery darts of the wicked. Because, you know, sometimes what people think the fiery darts of the wicked are is like driving down the road and you get a flat tire on your car. Or, you know, or, or just like having something bad financially happen to you. Or just any one of these little minor inconveniences that literally everybody in the world, whether they're a Christian or not, has to deal with. But when I think of the fiery darts of the wicked... You know, it, obviously I believe that those are coming from Satan or from demons or whatever. And the whole purpose of, you know, shooting darts at a Christian would be to eventually get them to just stop serving God at all. You know, because isn't that what Satan wants? You know, he wants us to not serve God. He wants us to not think on the things of God. So shooting us with fiery darts, I would imagine the purpose is 
to not have us serve God anymore and to not think about the things of God and not have our bodies as that set-apart sacrifice that we read about in Romans chapter number 12 where we're showing we're taking the Bible seriously, we're thinking about the things of God and seriously considering them. Well, in Ephesians chapter number 6 with the shield of faith, you know, I think of that as basically holding it up and quenching all the fiery darts. You know, back when we were in... Ohio a few, I think it was about a month ago or so, we visited a church and the guy actually was talking about the whole armor of God that day and he had like a big, uh, like a giant armor set that they had like back in Rome and had like a huge like full body shield that he was carrying around. But he had a really good illustration with it because he's talking about how, you know, people go through this life and they're constantly just talking about the hardships and they're constantly thinking about all the different things of the world. But basically, he threw the shield on the ground and stood in front of him and then basically started yelling, like, I don't know why I'm getting hit. I don't know why all these things are hurting me. And it's, well, you're not walking by faith. You know, we walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. You know, a lot of times people think about themselves and they think about their situation in life and they think about, you know, all the different things that can happen that are bad. You know, the Bible says that we shouldn't even worry about those things. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof in Matthew chapter number six. And I get it that bad things happen. And I get it that we should be physically prepared as much as we possibly can be. But don't ever forget that the person that gives us all of these things that we have in the first place is God. You know, and though we can worry about all the things in this world and we can worry about every little thing that happened to us, the whole armor of God prevents us from a lot of that anxiety in the first place by just understanding that we're in his hands and he promised he would take care of us. You know, and, you know, that type of worry and just the anxiety that comes along with it is something that can be really damaging for people to just constantly sit around and just think about only negative things all day. You know, as Christians, we're not supposed to do that. You know, go over to the book of Philippians. In chapter number four, and just think about this, you know, common verse in verse number eight. It says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. You know, this was written to a people that had a lot of problems. You can read back through the rest of the book of Ephesians and hear about the different persecution that they were getting, uh, the different hard times that they were going through. And the Apostle Paul is telling them, look, think about the things that are good, honest, pure, true, all of these things, because there's more hope and there's more just peace in thinking about all of those things. You know, ultimately, a million things can go wrong tomorrow, and the truth is a million things probably will go wrong tomorrow. Our country's not on a trend upward, it's on a trend downward. And if you haven't figured that out by now, I don't really know what to tell you. You know, it, it, it doesn't mean that we're up here just rejoicing about it. It doesn't mean that it's not that big of a deal or that it doesn't matter. But what the matters is, is that God is the one that gave us everything we have in the first place. And it doesn't matter, you know, what they do to fire you from your job. It doesn't matter what they do to you know, take whatever away from you. If God's the one that gave you any of those things anyways, then I think God is able to provide them even in the midst of a wicked country, even in the midst of a wicked government. Does that mean that we should just roll over and let everything happen? No, I don't think so. But at the same time, my fight in the government, if I lose the fight, if we lose all of our rights at the end of the day, I'm not going to be as heartbroken and torn up as the person that doesn't have faith, that doesn't have the Lord on their side, because at the end of the day, you know, I know that no matter what, I'll be okay anyways. And if I die, oh, well, I guess I'll just go to heaven, you know, and get my mansion and live there. They can't take that away from me. You know, the Bible says that we're supposed to fear the one that has the ability to cast our body and soul into hell. 
not the one that has the ability to take our life away from us because at the end of the day, we have eternal life. We can't have our life taken away from us because anybody that believes in Christ shall never die. You know, when you think about the whole armor of God and you think about everything that goes into it, go back to Ephesians chapter number 6. And you think about the shield of faith that's quenching the fiery darts of the wicked and the things that will come this way in this world that will try to get you off of the course, that will try to get you to stop serving God and just quit in the middle of the race. You know, think about these things and try to worry about it. You know, when you think about the whole armor of God, you know, compare it, compare the shield of faith or compare any of these things to the people that just religiously wear their masks. You know, in, in the idea that they think Because listen to me, wearing a mask is a decision built upon faith. And it's faith in the wrong thing. You know, it's faith that the mask is able to protect you from any viruses or any sickness and that it's going to keep you safe and secure and all these other things, which is actually what God is supposed to do for us, right? But the thing is, so you see people religiously wear these things around. I mean, they'll walk into places that the sign's not even on the door. And just they have it as soon as they get out of their car to when they walk in. Why? Because... They have religiously, by faith, convinced themselves that that thing is necessary or they will get sick and they will be severely hurt. You know, well, here's the thing. They do it without shame. So why would we walk around in shame of God? Why would we walk around in shape, not dress in the proper attire for our Christian race? You know, these people aren't worried about doing it and their God is the government, you know. And we have a God bigger than the government that has every government of the world on his shoulders, you know, but then Christians will walk around and be ashamed of the fact that they're a Christian. They'll be ashamed of running the Christian race and fall by the wayside, whether it be because they overexhaust themselves or just halfway through they just decide that it's just not for them. Listen, the Christian life is for everybody. It's not that difficult. It's not that hard. It's not that overbearing. It's easy. You know, it's something that he gave to us. His commandments are not burdensome. They're not ridiculous. But, you know, going on to say that, At the same time, though we should run our race, though we should run it hard, we should run it, you know, to serve God, and we should run it as we're taking it seriously, you know, I do also believe that it's important to get your proper rest and pace yourself throughout doing it. Go to Mark chapter number 2. Mark chapter number 2. Now, you know, I'm taking you to a passage that talks about the Sabbath, and I completely understand that the Sabbath is done away with and that our Sabbath is done away with in Christ. It's not a commandment that we're responsible of keeping anymore. But I do think that there's some decent principles that we can get just from the Sabbath in general and from what Jesus says here in Matthew, uh, not Matthew, Mark chapter number 2, beginning in verse number 23, it says, And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have ye never read what David did when he had need and was unhungered, he and they that were with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests, and gave also to them which were with him? And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. So rest is a vital, important thing for the Christian life. Like I said earlier with the person, when you're watching them run the 100-meter sprint, you know, by the end of that 100 meters, they're exhausted. And the point is, that's what they train for. That's their race. Well, you know what? The Christian life is not a 100-meter dash. It is a lifelong race. And, excuse me, the thing is, when you're running 
a hundred miles or you're running, you know, an entire lifetime, which is what we're doing as a Christian life. We don't know how long our life is going to last. We don't know the things that are going to come at us. So you know what? Don't run like you're going to die tomorrow. Run like you have a whole life ahead of you and pace yourself out through that. Because, you know, one thing that I've seen, you know, I've been saved for six years now. And, you know, unfortunately, six years is long enough time to see plenty of people come in and just ready to take the whole entire world on. And a few years later, or sometimes even a year later, they're just done and not even serving God at all. You know, and the thing that I've learned from that is basically don't let other people come and try to out-spiritual you and act like they are just, you know, over the top. And it's like, wow, this guy just got saved yesterday and he's got higher standards than me. And he's you know, reading more chapters of the Bible a day than me, and he's going soul winning for more hours than me. No, you know, you come up with your pace. You run your race, and you think about what you can do. Don't worry about what everybody else is doing. You know, because the thing is, I've seen it so many times where people will, like, get saved, and then they're just like, I'm changing every single aspect of my life with a snap of the fingers. And they do it super fast, and they get real high-minded and real over-the-top, just ridiculous standards right off the bat. And I wanted to talk about this family that I saw one time. They have a big TV show, and at first I watched it just because it kind of interested me. But I didn't watch it anymore because eventually it started getting really bad. But basically it was this family called the Plath family. And they lived down south. It might have been Georgia or Alabama or somewhere down there. And basically they were a super religious family. They were one of those families that was too good to even attend a church. You know, they, they had like house church and, you know, they made their girls dress like they were in the Amish and had all these just ridiculous standards. But one of them that really jumped out to me was that the kids were never allowed to have any form of sugar whatsoever. You know, they weren't allowed to have pop. They weren't allowed to have ice cream. They weren't allowed to have candy. And look, I'm not saying that, you know, your kid's diet needs to be just nothing but ice cream and pop and candy. But, you know, forbidding it and saying that it's bad and all these other things... I think that's kind of bizarre for a kid. You know, that's just my opinion. But the thing is, what they did is they basically set this up in their kid's life, that it was like a sin to drink Coke, or it was like a sin to drink ice cream. Well, you and I know that Coke or ice cream or any one of these other things in moderation is not a sin, right? And that it's not even harmful and that I would even say that it's beneficial just to enjoy something every once in a while. You know, and I'm up here and I'm talking about avoiding vanity and all these other things. But please understand, you know, a little bit of fun and just relaxation is okay every once in a while. You know, last year during Christmas time, I heard there, there was something. I don't even remember what it was. But my wife and I were going through and people were talking about like their Christmas traditions. And it was just like going down the list of just like all these things like we gather around as a family and read the Bible and all these other, and sing hymns. And I'm thinking like, I turn on like Elf and watch all these other Christmas movies and things like that. And it's like, you're like, well, you know, Christmas is all about Jesus. Yeah, but you know what? It's okay to have fun every once in a while. You know, and if you have those standards, then fine. But I'm telling you, I don't plan on doing this thing for just a couple of years. I plan on doing it for a lifetime, and I'd like to laugh and enjoy myself every once in a while. You know, I don't feel like I need to wear my shirt and tie and just be no fun in any case of mind. The only thing I can do is read and memorize the Bible and go soul winning. It's okay to have fun every once in a while, right? But these people, they, you know, they get so concerned about all these little things. Well, you know, what eventually happens? Well, their kids, every time the parents go away, they get one of their older siblings to go to the grocery store and bring them home a bunch of pop and candy and ice cream and all this stuff and just load up on it. 
But there's something psychologically, though, that happens there. Where basically it's like mom and dad are giving me all these rules and they're telling me that, uh, that Coca-Cola and the candy and ice cream and all these things are bad. Well, I had all of that stuff. I'm perfectly fine. In fact, I enjoyed it. Mom and dad also said that alcohol is bad. Maybe I'll go drink alcohol and alcohol won't be that bad. And I'm telling you right now, every single person in this room, you could go to the store and buy a bottle of beer and go home and drink it and it probably wouldn't ruin your life. You know, but the problem is it's not about the first drink or it's not about the first bottle or the first 12-pack. It's about the end thereof. And it's about what it turns into and what it causes in the long run. It's about the damage that it does to your body. It's about the things that it does to yourself, where you'll get into a car and you'll drive hundreds of miles down the road and you'll kill somebody in the car. You'll do things under the influence that you wouldn't even think about doing in a sober state of mind. Those are the things that damage you. But, you know, people do this thing with standards where it's like the same exact thing. You know, in, in my opinion, what the Bible teaches is that, you know, the definition of modesty, basically, in terms of, like, you know, what we should wear on our legs is from the waist to the, you know, to the knee. I think that we should cover that. I think the Bible's clear on that. But, you know, sometimes people take it to an extreme. And they're just like, well, I think it should go to the ankles. Or I think, you know, you know, for a lady, the skirt needs to be dragging behind her like a woman, you know, walking down the aisle at her wedding day. And, you know, I haven't heard anybody preach that. But you know what I'm talking about, though, about people that just take stuff above and beyond and make it more of a big deal than it actually is and make standards higher than that. Well, the thing is, they'll set a ridiculous, unattainable standard for themselves. Because how many women on a hot summer day want to be wearing just huge, long clothes covering every inch of their body? And you know, So what you do is just you know, hurt yourself in the end because then you're just going to start breaking your own standards because you don't even really believe in them. And what happens is these people will just set these ridiculous statements up for themselves or ridiculous state of life. And then one day they basically just look in the mirror and think, what do I even believe at all? Why am I doing all these ridiculous things? You know what they're doing is they're just sprinting. They basically get saved and then they just hit the ground and they run as fast as they can in one direction. They don't even know where they're going. They don't have any basis on why they're doing the things that they're doing. And eventually they just get so far that they get lost. They don't even know where they're at and they just quit and they move on. And you know, anytime I see somebody just going above and beyond and just ridiculous with standards or with just the way that they do things or their view on other people and what other people should be doing, I genuinely get worried for that person because I think they're probably not going to last very long. And I don't mean that as an insult, and I don't also mean to go throw a wet blanket on somebody that's on fire or excited about the things of God, but I'm saying that people that just go above and beyond what is necessary, and I don't think I have to stand up here and define all these things. I think everyone in this room knows exactly what I'm talking about. But people that just go absolutely above and beyond ridiculous, and then years later they're not serving God anymore or not doing any of these things, you know, so when someone comes along and they're just over the top, they're ridiculous about things, they can't ever calm down and they can't ever relax and they can't ever let themselves have fun, I genuinely worry for those people and I hope that they consider what they're doing to themselves by not really letting themselves enjoy just basic things, you know, that this world has to offer. I don't believe that God set all of these wonderful things in this world, that there's nothing wrong with them or there's nothing sinful about them for us basically to just sit back there and cross our arms and pout about the fact that we can't have anything to do with them. You know, I think there's plenty of things that this world has to offer, you know, that Christians should enjoy. And, you know, we're coming right up on Christmas time. I think there's plenty of things, you know, that this world has to offer that Christians can take part in, and they're not being worldly because of it. You know, I plan on taking my family out to Chicago and going and look at Christmas lights and do all these other things. You know, go up to some of the 
you know, like the Lincoln Park area and how they decorated up there and it's all the beautiful things there. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, Chicago's wicked and they do all these other things too. Well, am I going there and taking part in those things or am I looking at Christmas lights, you know? And, and do Christmas lights, you know, preach the gospel or talk about the birth of Christ? I'm just trying to enjoy myself, you know? I'm trying to give myself a break and just enjoy things. And honestly, I think people, if they would give themselves breaks more often, they would feel a lot better about serving God on a regular basis and not get just grudgingly going out soul winning, grudgingly come to church, grudgingly singing hymns, grudgingly giving your tithe or any offerings that you give. Do these things out of love and out of a pure heart that you're actually excited about serving God. That's how you're going to keep on running the race. If you want to just get involved in the Christian life and start running the Christian race and all the things that have to do with it, but your motive is basically just impressing other people or trying to do all these amazing things and whatever else comes into that category, you will not make it very far. You're not going to make it anywhere because you are quickly going to run out of that steam because eventually you're going to realize that people don't really care about the things that you do and any of these extra things that ultimately your race and your life and your decision to follow Christ and the things that are contained in the Bible comes based upon what you want to do for God. It's a direct relationship. It's not about your relationship with this church. It's not about your relationship with any pastor or any person that you think about. It is about you and God in between you alone. Go to John chapter number 16. John chapter number 16. Obviously, when you're thinking about a long distance race and you're thinking about all the things that go into that, you know, I wouldn't basically come out and say that the farthest distance I've ever ran is like 100 meters. You know, it might, the only thing I do is just run 100 meters. And I just do that over and over and over again. And then basically wake up the next day and decide, I'm going to go run a marathon today. You know, I don't train for it. I don't do anything to it. You know, I think that exercise is an important thing to work towards. And I think that you can see examples of, you know, what I would call spiritual exercise in the Bible. John chapter number 16, in verse number 1, it says, These things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things will they, have, these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, that ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. Now, right there, you would have all these like cult leader, text analysis experts come along and say that, oh, Jesus is a bad person because he was withholding information for them. Well, you know, he was withholding information for them for his own good. You know, some people get really caught up into this stuff. And, you know, I understand in some aspects of it about withholding information. I don't think that withholding information is just a good thing all the time. But to sit back and say that just period withholding information is bad, sometimes people would be given that information and it would kill them or it would just disrupt them and mess them up. Well, John chapter number 16, you have an example of Jesus withholding information about how basically the disciples, if they follow him, eventually the people in the synagogues are going to want to kill them. They're going to want to do everything. Would you think that any one of those people who initially followed Jesus Christ, which was a good thing, but basically Jesus told them as they make the decision to follow after him and come after him, by the way, not very long from now, all your friends, all your brethren that you've known your whole life, your whole life that you've had up to this point, those people are going to want to kill you because of me. Are you still going to follow me? Who would do it? Nobody would do it. 
That's the reason why. I mean, I'm not saying nobody would do it, but the same exact way that you have Peter come up and beat his chest and talk about how he would never deny him and he did it all these times, and then three different times you have the opportunity to say that he knew him and he refused it every single one of those times. Why? Because people in general are afraid of death. They're afraid of the things that come. They don't want to deal with the repercussions. Jesus here withholds this information from them. Why? Because they weren't ready for it yet. And you know what? When you're running the Christian race, there's certain things that you just might not be ready for yet. Or when you're preparing for a race, there's certain things that you might not be ready for yet. You know, when you hear about the things in the Bible that come along and, you know, talk about relationship issues that you could have with your family, you know, of things that come up in your family. Now, some people get this attitude about basically like, the Bible says I might have problems with my family. I'm just going to cut them all out of my life right now. I don't think that you should do that. But I do think you should be aware it's possible that it could happen. You know, it's possible that your family could get upset about the fact that you live a Christian life. It's possible that there could be problems that come because of that. Does that mean that we just stop living the Christian life? No, we don't stop living the Christian life. We follow God over anything in this world. No matter what happens, no matter what our friends do, no matter what our church does, anything, we as individuals have a you know, duty to follow after God and the commandments that are in the Bible. It does not mean that our salvation relies on those things, but we should follow after them no matter what. But my point is, here in John chapter number 16, he's basically presenting the disciples with saying that, hey, at the beginning, they weren't ready for this, but now they are. And that his time of departure is soon, and that eventually he's going to go away, and they're going to have to face the task of being on their own without Jesus Christ. You know, you think about today, Pastor Murtry's out, and he ordained Pastor Obi. They're going to be an independent church now. Now, a lot of people haven't seen a lot of the stuff that they've went through, I don't even really know that much about it, but I know that for months now, they've been working on Zoom calls, they've been talking about these different things, and he's been training him and working on him. It's not like he basically just got a phone call and said, hey, I need to be ordained, and he went out and did it. You know, but they've been working together. You know, at first, you know, at the first phone call, Pastor McMurtry might not have thought that, hey, I can just go out there and do it. But after spending time with him, after working with him, now he's ready. You know, and he's ordained him and he's moved on. It's a different thing now. When we live the Christian life, there's things that someday we might have to face. There's battles, there's trials, there's stands that we might have to take. And you know, at face value, a new believer that just gets saved out soul winning is not going to be ready or not going to be capable as all the things that someone who's been in it for the long run is going to be. You know, now we as Christians should be exercising and focusing on the things of God, and worrying about all the things. You think about all the disciples and what they did. What were they doing up to this point, in between when they first met Jesus, up to now, where Jesus is about to depart from them? They worked. You know, they, they toiled day and night. They ministered to other people. They preached the gospel. They worked on all these other things. And, you know, it's like sometimes Christians get this attitude where they're super, super excited about, you know, the fact that things are going pretty south in this world and that it might get harder to be a Christian. And now I'm really going to serve God. But if you didn't do it any of the times when it was easy, you are not going to do it when it's hard. And I get it that sometimes people will get like these adrenaline rushes, you know. And it's like, you know, for example, you think about, you know, uh, if, if they made soul winning illegal tomorrow, every, all these people would just come out of the blue and just be like, let's go soul winning. Let's have a soul winning marathon. Let's stand up against this stuff. You know, but if they actually went out there and they started knocking doors, they might have an okay day or whatever. But, you know, eventually they just kind of fizzle out because it's not something that they're used to. 
They basically would get ready to run the marathon of going through life where preaching the gospel is illegal, hit the ground running in a full sprint, exhaust themselves day one, and just kind of fizzle out. You know, it's all about taking things at your own pace and working at your own speed. You know, people might be kind of disappointed that in the winter on Sundays we don't really go out as much. But, you know, think about that for a second just logically. If you were an unsaved person and someone came out and knocked on your door and it was negative 10 degrees outside, would you open the door and be willing to stand like where on one side of the door is a nice 70-plus degree house, warm and toasty outside, and then you open the door. And you know what it's like up here when you open the door out in the winter. It's just a blast of winter air. Would an unsaved person want to sit out there and talk to you and have a conversation with you about the things of God or about getting saved when they're not saved? I bet that we would go out and, you know what, we might end up getting somebody saved every once in a while. But, you know, ultimately what we're going to do is we'll go on the maps and we'll mark these streets off as complete, mark these streets off as done, and actually not accomplish anything because we just knocked a bunch of unanswered doors because people don't want to come to the door when it's negative 10 degrees outside, right? Now, does this mean just no soul winning whatsoever? No, we're not stopping soul winning entirely. But we're also saying that sometimes in the Christian life, we've got to pull back on these things and hold up. Why? Because the goal of this church is to go soul winning until Jesus comes, you know, and to keep on going. So why would we put ourselves through ridiculousness of just hard times and knocking on doors and not seeing anything? That just discourages people. It makes new people not want to go. You know, people that are new to soul winning and are, you know, ready to go soul winning, they're anxious to come out, they want to go out soul winning and see somebody get saved. They don't want to go out soul winning and just freezing, having to hold their hands in their pockets just to even keep their fingers from getting frostbite on them after just unanswered door after unanswered door after unanswered door. Now, every once in a while, yes, we'll have plenty of opportunities to go to the indoor apartments around here on Saturdays. We'll go all over the place. But look, sometimes it's not a 100-meter sprint. And, you know, even when you're running marathons or you're running long distances, or when I was a swimmer, I used to swim long distances, you know, we would keep track of our lap times and just how long it takes per lap. And, you know, the thing is, when you're running a long race, every lap isn't the same pace. You kind of stagger it. Sometimes you'll go faster, sometimes you'll go slower. This is not just some, you know, random concept that I'm talking about. This is what professional athletes that get paid millions of dollars do. You do not just take off. And say you're going to run a marathon and you're going to run at a speed of like 10 miles an hour the whole time to get you a specific time. You go up and down, you vary through pace depending on how you feel. Sometimes you pick it up, sometimes you slow down and back off a little bit. That's how the Christian life is. But I'm telling you, if you want to bury your head in the sand and you want to go and run as fast as you can, then by all means don't take advice to anything that I've said in this sermon, but you know, take the warning that you know, I understand, I'm not standing up here like I've got decades of experience behind my belt, but I do have experience of years enough that I've seen this kind of thing happen, and I've heard plenty of sermons from people that have been in this thing for decades that have talked about the exact kind of people that I'm talking about tonight that just never can slow down, never can take a break. Sometimes it's necessary. I'm not saying that the whole world's not going to hell and that we don't have to preach the gospel to people, but I am saying that we can go hardcore over the top, everything, is all the time, anytime we want to, and get a few people saved. But I would rather somebody go soul winning for an entire lifetime spread out over the course of decades than one person go soul winning every single day for an entire year and then never do it again because they got burned out. And I think that this church has emphasized over and over and over again about longevity 
and about serving God the whole entire lifetime rather than being as hardcore as we can, having as many unattainable standards set up as we possibly can, having as righteous of a show on that we possibly can, but more focused on inwardly deciding, serve God with all of your heart, take breaks when necessary, and run the Christian race. And it's not about how fast you run it. It's not about all the things that you accomplish. It's about finishing well at the end of the race. That's what we should strive for as Christians. Nobody cares about the guy that runs 26 miles during the marathon and cuts off before the last .2 miles that he has to go. If he doesn't finish the race, it doesn't matter. But the guy that might take twice the time that he took to get to 26 miles but goes the last .2 miles because he didn't kill himself in that first part of the race, people will look at that guy with more respect than they will the one that ran and killed himself before he could even get to the end. That is what the Christian life is about, and I hope this message helped, and I hope you can take some of these things and apply to them. Do not overwork yourself. Do not stress yourself out about trying to keep track and keep up pace with people that have been in it longer than you. It's not always going to be this thing where we can all just go out and run. 50 miles every day just to keep up with the things of God. But think about yourself on an individual level, what it takes to serve God and serve God ultimately with your whole heart, all your mind, love, soul, and strength. That should be our goal and to finish well at the end of it. So with that, let's close in a word of prayer. So Father, just thank you so much for everything you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity for rest and not giving us burdensome tasks and things that we have to work about. Uh, Lord, I pray that you just help us to keep our eyes focused on you at all points in time and think about what you've set up before us and the race that you've set before us and help us to be able to run it uh, with all faith and everything and putting you first in our life. Just thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.